Some of you may be amazed that we are uh, finally uh, completing this chapter. We've been in it for a long, long time. And this points us to a certain paradox of human existence. One thing that I've observed about mankind, and you've observed surely about yourself, is that you long for something called finality. You long for things to be completed. And yet when you receive finality in almost anything, you find that great conclusion to be lacking in one way or another. This comes out in a variety of ways, including our popular culture. Um, I don't know if you know this, if you followed the franchise, but there's a a movie franchise called Rambo, and um, Last Blood is on its way. I just want to know how many of you, if you had to bet your life that Last Blood was the last Rambo installment, you would be willing to bet your life on it. You might have noticed that, in fact, the second Rambo installment was called First Blood Part 2. What does that tell you about the likelihood of Last Blood being the end of this series? See, we want to hear that it's the end, but the fact is, once it's come, we almost always find ourselves wanting something more. Those of you who are gamers, you may know of the Final Fantasy video game series. One might have thought that if ever there were only going to be one Video game in a series, it might be Final Fantasy because it is the final one after all. We're actually on Final Fantasy number 15. If there were anything ever more false, it is that this fantasy was final. You guys get it. We both need finality, and whatever finality we get never seems to be enough. Trinitas Church, I'm going to talk to you about the finality that we anticipate. It is bound up with Jesus Christ, his second coming, our resurrection with him. And the mystery of it is that it's real finality. Finality that does satisfy. With that in mind, we're going to have to probe our hearts. And even the ways in which we try to diminish the finality of Christ's work so that we can be brought right back around to finding our satisfaction in him. So bow your heads with me before we go to the word. Mighty God, we confess to you that our hearts are always searching. We've come to you confessing our sins, a big part of which is that though we have salvation in Jesus Christ, we continually turn to the things of this world, attempting to find what only Christ can give. Lord, the same is true about what you have told us about our great hope. Lord God, we can hardly believe that in Christ we will finally be satisfied. That we go looking for all sorts of things beyond him and around him. Things besides him, even in our great future. To set our hope on because we can hardly believe that he satisfies. We pray that you would remedy something of this wandering heart of ours today. That you would use your word and the preaching of it. And the confession of our faith to follow is wonderful means to refocus us on Christ. In Jesus' name we pray by your spirit in him. All right, brothers and sisters, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to read verses 50 through 57. And when we're finished, we'll all rise to our feet and sing a short verse together, the glory of Patri, to give thanks to God for his infallible word. Follow along with me. 
Now I say this, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will it come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, we have read Paul's argumentation about the resurrection for several weeks now. And now he touches on one final question. One last matter. Paul has so emphasized that the Lord God is going to raise all those who have been put in the grave from the dead. And he's going to raise believers to glory that it raises a certain question for some people. Oh my goodness, what if I haven't died? yet on that last day. Perhaps I'd better get to dying because if I want to participate in this resurrection from the dead, well then, I've got to do what Paul says. I've got to be like that seed which first goes into the earth before it grows and changes. Paul introduces one last matter and he calls it a mystery. Trinitas Church, every time the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery, musterion, he is always talking about a special truth revealed by God alone that human reason could never discover or arrive at by itself. Paul says that this incredible mystery is that not every human person will die in the course of human history. It actually won't happen that way. Instead, He says that at the last trumpet, what does that mean? Is it a little literal trumpet? Probably not. What a trumpet does is it gathers people for war and for assembly and worship in Israel. Paul says at the last gathering, the end, the last gathering of mankind, the last trumpet, there will be a radical, miraculous transformation of those who are still alive. He puts it this way, in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, there will be an instantaneous change of those who believe in Jesus Christ, wherein we are immediately translated into a different type of bodily existence that can no longer suffer harm. It is now perishable, immortal, and it will forever be in the presence of Christ. Friends, you think about the blink of an eye. Fact is, you blink your eyes all day long. You've even blinked your eyes several times in the last 30 seconds and you didn't even notice it. And now it's gonna be really annoying because you're gonna notice every single time you blink your eyes. But had you not thought about it, it's the sort of thing that happens so quickly that it's unnoticeable. Paul answers the question, therefore, Then on the last day at the resurrection, some will be resurrected even apart 
from death. You know, it's funny, the Thessalonian church, another church up north, northeast from Corinth, they had the opposite problem. Some people were so convinced that Jesus would return in their lifetime that they were worried that if you died, maybe you would miss the second coming of Jesus Christ and miss out on the big day. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, therefore, answers that problem where Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Apparently, when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be believers on earth alive. They will be resurrected immediately, caught up to him in the air, raptured, as it were, as he is descending. And the final judgment will ensue. Paul's most clear about this in telling us that accompanying this complex of events of Jesus returning, believers being resurrected from the dead... What will follow immediately is the death of death itself. As Paul puts it, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What he means by that is that a body animated primarily by blood, blood gives life, says Leviticus, will be replaced with a body that is immediately sustained by the spirit of God in giving men life. And at that same time, death itself That great enemy that we fear and that puts an end to our conscious life and existence in the body, it will be swallowed up in victory. He quotes two scriptures, Isaiah 25, 8, Hosea 13, 14. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? On that last day of the resurrection, we will consider death no more. There's a reason, therefore, why we call Jesus' second coming the blessed hope. Titus 2.13 describes the heart of every Christian. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because in him, in his coming, there's finality, closure. There's no greater gift than this. There will be no searching for any further satisfaction and anything Else, after this, the saga comes to a close. Trinitas Church, the scheme that Paul has given us may seem simple enough, but remarkably, remarkably throughout the ages of Christianity, we have found ways to forget about the finality of Christ. We have had enemies to this great blessed hope. And I'm going to discuss three of them today. What are these enemies? to the finality of Jesus Christ's return? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention three words that you probably have never heard before. These three enemies to the finality of Christ's coming and the hope in it are something called Kiliism. You know that one? Something called hyperpreterism. You know that one? Something called universalism. Many of you are saying, Brand, I don't even know what those words mean, so how can I be in danger of having my hope and the finality of Christ stolen by them? In fact, I'll have you know that you all know them so well. I'll mention before I talk about these challenges to the finality of Christ that we have different levels of concern about all of them. 
Some of them are minority reports in the history of Christianity. Some of them are heterodoxy, contrary to good doctrine. Some of them are out-and-out heresy to be condemned in full. So let us jump right in. Right in. What do you suppose kiliism means? Well, it comes from the Greek word kilios, which means millennium. Friends, the Bible, in addition to telling us about Jesus' second coming, also tells us about other great events in the future of this world. One of them is this concept that there will be a millennial period of relative blessing in the world over against death and suffering and sin. We read about this millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And I'll tell you, Kiliism is this view that so focuses on this period called the millennium that it overshadows the great finality that we're going to have in Jesus Christ. That it becomes the main thing that you're thinking about, hoping about, anticipating over and above the coming of your Lord and your union with him. Here's the basic scheme. In Revelation chapter 20, we read that a group of martyrs come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Some have thought that this is a first resurrection of the body, maybe what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about, where Christ will descend, people will be raised from the dead, and then they will reign on the earth for a thousand years more before the final end of the world. Trinitas, I bet that most of you were taught this in your youth. How many of you? This sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. We're actually taught that for a thousand years, there will be life on this earth where resurrected people with resurrected bodies will be walking around with people like normal flesh and blood bodies like yourselves. And that before the end of this thousand years, there will be a great rebellion of some And that will be followed by a second resurrection, the final judgment and all of the things we just talked about. Do you see how the finality of Christ's coming and the peace to be had in it is put on pause for a thousand years before you can say we're finally done? Many of you might say, Brant, Revelation 20 is in the Bible, so what do you do with it? I would submit, and if I were preaching on it, I would expound this view that that first resurrection of Christian martyrs is really indicative of a revival and relative triumph of the church toward the end of Christ's present rule, but before his second coming. And it's not something that follows after the great day of his return. But let me talk about this view for a little bit. This killiest view, this millennialist view, it valiantly defends the supernatural, and for that we are grateful. It has become the predominant eschatology among those in the evangelical world, especially after Hal Lindsey's late great Planet Earth, which sold over 28 million copies. I read that book as a young man. But it's actually associated with a sometimes bizarre view where the supernatural and the natural are mixed on earth for a season. And where people have a greater hope for extravagant political reign and sensual, sensual pleasure in this life over and above Jesus' return. I want you to think about what this view does. It actually divides the body of Christ at the resurrection. Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and after that, all those who are at his coming. 
This tells us that when Jesus returns, all those who are his will be raised from the dead and conformed to his image. But this view of the millennium I just described divides the resurrection where some believers are raised when Jesus returns and some a thousand years later. Strangely, where Ephesians 5.27 says that Jesus will return to a bride without spot or wrinkle, this view really would have us believing that Jesus returns to a bride without parts. Many missing members yet to be attained in a thousand years. You won't have the resurrection of the whole Christian body. You'll rather have a thousand years to wait. Not only that, but it divides resurrection from victory over death. We're told after Jesus returns, that is when death will be swallowed up in victory. But this view tells us that people will actually be giving birth to children, dying, that people will be carrying on in human existence. Some will be converting, others will be apostatizing and rebelling for a thousand years. And it kind of feels like last blood part two. Some of the practical dangers of this is that Sometimes people who have this view, their hearts are more permeated with a desire to see streets covered with gold, ever bearing fruit trees, and an earth without an ocean, even more than they're excited to be united to their Savior. What it's like, friends, is talking to a man who's about to go into his wedding day tomorrow. And imagine you were talking to a groom and you said, Hey, man, aren't you excited about your wedding tomorrow? And he said, yeah, I totally am. I can't wait for that catered food we paid for, that chicken marsala. It's going to be so good. Do you suppose you might step back and say, man, what I meant was, aren't you excited about your bride? That woman you're going to be married to till death do you part. If that brother were to respond, yes, that's going to be great. But man, that chicken marsala, whoo, we paid a lot for that and it's going to be good. There is a way that we can think about the future where all of our hope and peace rests not ultimately in the Jesus to whom we are going to be united and married, but celebrates ultimately something as banal as what the food will be like. This is how our finality in Christ gets stolen. I should mention many a great theologians or premillennialists, ministers in our denomination are. You lapse from being a premillennialist who believes in those thousand years after Christ's return into a killiest when your focus and your joy turns to the sensual pleasures of the kingdom over and above the Christ himself. Friends, this view makes for a very strange situation. On some people's interpretation of it for a thousand years, the Mosaic law, Jewish sacrifice, and Jewish rule will be reinstituted Can you think about the loss of finality that you might have if that were the case? Hebrews 10 says that by one offering, we have peace forever. We have been perfected forever by Jesus Christ. And some have suggested that maybe for a thousand years, we'll be offering sacrifices anew. We will be reverting from this more simple and spiritual form of worship to a more complex and external one. Friends, what I'd have you consider is this, that the root difficulty is that we have such trouble imagining final satisfaction in being, in being united to our Savior himself in a person that it's easier to place our hopes in anticipating familiar places, structures, and events 
because we can't imagine simply being satisfied in the one who redeemed us. And as a result, we lose finality. Friends, if this is one error, this tendency to place all sorts of expectations after Christ's coming as our ultimate hope over Christ himself, the church has fallen into an opposite error as well. This leads us to another word you maybe have never considered. It's called hyperpreterism. The word preterite in Latin means the past tense. There is a view that has arisen, it's a vast minority report in the church, that many and maybe all New Testament prophecies refer to events that have already happened. Have you ever heard this? Many of you may have not have heard of this, but I'll tell you right now, there are families in this church who have been torn apart by it because of how radically it changes your whole view of Christianity. Many of the New Testament prophecies say things like this. These are events that must soon take place. They're quickly, they're near, they're things at hand. And it's not altogether false. Jesus himself told that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed within his own generation. He's called all men to be watchful and ready for his coming. Many have inferred from this, therefore, that perhaps everything Jesus and the prophets ever predicted were to come about in the lifetime of the apostles and that maybe the second coming of Christ has already occurred. I'll bet that's never occurred to any of you. But since the 18th and 19th centuries, as critical scholars began to call into question whether or not the prophets were infallible, whether we could trust them, they have hypothesized that maybe Jesus and the apostles were wrong. They foretold all of these events as if they were to happen in the lifetime of the apostles. They got it wrong, and good-intentioned apologists have responded sometimes in saying he got it right, and indeed, all of it has already occurred. Jesus' return, the final judgment, and the resurrection. You might wonder, how could this be, Brent? The argument goes like this. When Paul speaks of a resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he means only the spiritual release of your soul from your body and descent into heaven. You're rising up spiritually when you die. Friends, we have taken pains throughout this chapter to explain that Paul meant the opposite. Paul has taken pains to say that we will be resurrected just like Jesus was. And did Jesus resurrect as a spirit who simply leapt from his body? Absolutely not. The grave was empty, friends. Our hope is not in spiritual metaphor. Our hope is not in the release of the soul from the body as the Corinthians anticipated. It is in the resurrection of the body and the finality of our union with Christ where we will reach out and embrace the Lord who bought us. Those who held this view called hyperpreterism, that means hyper-fulfilled, everything is past. They even point to our passage for alleged support for their view. Paul says in verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And some have supposed Paul, by using the first person plural pronoun, we, meant to anticipate that either he or some present would be alive for the resurrection. And they say, therefore, Paul must have supposed the resurrection would happen in his lifetime. We're reminded by the quote by Emerson, a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of sorts of the mind. Friends, 
Paul has taught that we are one body as Christians with every believer, past, present, and future. And when Christians say we, we can speak on behalf of the whole church and mean that some of us, maybe our children, thousands of years in the future will be alive when Christ returns. But it doesn't mean that we think that we in our lifetime or our neighbors will necessarily see the second coming. God addresses his people this way all the time referring to a present generation, threatening them for things that will happen hundreds and even thousands of years in the future. But here's the worst part of it all, friends. If Christ has already returned in a simply spiritual sense, the resurrection has already occurred in a spiritual sense, you have no finality. Life and death will go on forever. You might even ask the question, how in the world How in the world do we even function as a church? We're told to do the Lord's Supper as often we ought to eat this bread and drink this wine to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. If he's already come, friends, what are we doing here? You see, this view steals from you any peace that everything gets wrapped up and completed. I'd say that the root error for this is that we want... We want worldly glory and the ability to answer all of our critics to their satisfaction, but there is a way that God's word speaks that will never quite be palatable to what the world wants to hear. And when God says things like quickly and soon, there's a perspective and vantage point on reality set against eternity where it can be said that Christ is coming quickly because this world in reality is much shorter than we think it is. Set against eternity, it is less than a hairbreadth on a football field. We lose finality completely when we try to spiritualize what God says because it's easier to believe than supernatural changes occurring. But this leads us to our final error, and this is the one that will prick your heart the most. You might say that all of the things I've said just thus far, you've never been a Bible thumper, you've never considered those questions, but what I'm going to talk about right now, you have considered, and this, this is going to prick your conscience the most. It is the grave error of something called universalism. Universalism is becoming an increasingly popular view to this day. It is the view that no one on planet Earth will spend eternity in hell but God will rather redeem absolutely everyone. This thesis is played with by one named Rob Bell in his recent book, semi-recent, last 10 years, Love Wins. It's considered and hoped for, although he ultimately rejects it. It's often based on the idea that if God is loving, he would not allow anyone to be out of his presence forever. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, who didn't believe in the infallibility of scripture, he expressed his views this way, although the Bible talks about hell, I will hope that all men will in eternity be redeemed. One of the arguments for this idea that no one will ever go to hell is that the redeemed themselves cannot have full joy in heaven if they know their lost brothers and sisters are in hell. And I want you to ask yourself for a second if that pricks your heart at all. The argument goes that we cannot possibly have satisfaction and finality in heaven if anyone we love or care about is in hell. That's the argument. 
Universalists have also alleged support from 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 22, it said, in, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We've dealt with this. The real question is, how are you in Adam, brothers and sisters? By your birth, because he's your biological father. How are you in Christ? By faith alone. If you do not exercise faith in Jesus Christ in this life, we are told that we have nothing to expect but judgment and for eternity. Yes, all in Adam die. All in Christ are made alive. Are you in Christ? I sure do hope so. There's no support for universalism in these passages. Some have even said, death is swallowed up in victory. Doesn't this mean that no one will remain in hell in the power or the chains of death? Some have even argued that therefore, even after Christ has returned, there will be an opportunity for people to repent in hell for eternity. And the Bible never speaks of any such thing. Let me tell you what the root problem is here. When you embrace or latch on to universalism, your blessed hope in the coming of Jesus Christ for satisfaction shifts from being a hope in his coming to a hope in the coming around of every sinner in in eternity after Christ has already come. It virtually says that heaven will not quite be heaven until heaven waits on every sinner in hell to repent. And to come to the Lord. There's no ending anymore. The mistake from which we suffer is this. We have too high an estimation of those we love. And too low an estimation of the power of Christ to satisfy Trinitas, when we contemplate as our great hope that our brothers will be saved to the last man over a hope in being united to Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have a wrong view of man. Too often we think of man in opposition to God as just in darkness, sick, and troubled by death. The Bible would have you understand something different about ourselves and every single person when we have yet to believe. We're not in darkness. We're not sick. We're not troubled by death. The Bible says we are darkness. We are sickness. And we are agents of death. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were formerly darkness. Brothers and sisters, in our unbelief, we were not in the dark. We were darkness and agents of evil. We are called sons of deception and the devil. What this means, and you need to take this in, what you find most lovable about any person who is lost any admirable quality that you find in them, it is there only because of God's restraint, his common grace. And I'm going to tell you something terrifying. In themselves and in ourselves, without Jesus Christ, if we were left to our own, we would be so dark, perverse, self-harming that you would not be able to look at yourself or your neighbor in the mirror. 
the depths of darkness in our depravity and rebelling against the eternal, holy, omnipotent, righteous God is so far worse than you have ever considered that to suppose for a moment your satisfaction and peace is gonna be in other people with you for eternity, you've gotten it all wrong and you've wrongly estimated fallen mankind. But if you could imagine something worse, universalism springs from the air of wrongly estimating the value of Christ. I want to tell you something. Only God in Christ is worthy of your absolute devotion. Christ is describing his kingdom, his rule by his Holy Spirit. He describes it this way. Ask yourself if you regard it this way. Jesus said to them, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure, a pearl of great price that is so valuable that everything in this life would rather be lost for him and for possession of it. What this means is that no matter who you love, Christ demands to be loved more. Hear the words of Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I know every single person in this room has a mom, has a father, may have a brother, sister, may have a child. You know how much you love these people in your life. Jesus says that I must be your satisfaction and I alone. You might wonder how in the world you could be so satisfied in Jesus Christ and lose these loved ones. I'm gonna give you a really important insight. Every single person that you have ever known, met, and loved is just an image of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means? Everything you love in people in this life is just a side effect, an image, a reflection of the eternal God himself. And if you have him, if you have the reality and the archetype, if you have him, you have everything and you will be lacking in nothing. Whatever you got from that loved one who nevertheless is in rebellion against Christ, you will have that whole fulfillment in Christ, the reality, the God in whose image they were made. Not only are all those whom we love made in the image of the triune God who satisfies, but no person that you could love in this world could or would bear the infinite wrath of God in your place. There's only one. And our finality has to be in him. This is the gospel, friends. I'll tell you what I tell you every week. It's alluded to in the final verses of our passage, 56 to 57. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the bad news is that death hurts, it stings only because of sin. Even before the fall, there's a sense in which Adam underwent a death, a sort of interruption of his, of his conscious and physical life where he swooned deeply. 
And his wife was made from his side and he was changed and transformed. That death did not sting, it blessed. When we sin, brothers and sisters, our death means finality and the end of a life of rebellion against God. We have nothing to await but judgment. Sin only exists because there was a law given to mankind that is a path of obedience to eternal life and we got off that path. But let me tell you the good news and this is the only thing that saves. It's not, it's not universalism. It's not a kingdom of worldly political power and glory. It's not a spiritual metaphorical resurrection. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and here is what he has done. That death that we deserve because of sin and because of the law, we were already told in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He bore the infinite wrath of God in our stead. Not only that, that path that God had given to us in his law that defines righteousness, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, that Jesus Christ kept that law and therefore he became to us righteousness. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, he will bear your sin in his, your penalty and he will give you his righteousness like a garment to wear, like a robe to be celebrated. And our finality comes in that day when we are resurrected in glory with him. Trinitas Church, I just challenge you, if you're a believer, what have you been looking forward to? Is there anything beyond the bridegroom who's gonna raise you up in glory? If you're in this place and you don't know Jesus Christ, I have to challenge you. You are still in your sins. You are under a condemnation of death. Race to your savior. He's the end of it all. He's your hope and peace. He alone has eternal life. Bow your heads with me. Almighty God, we need finality. But we need finality that really satisfies. We are so inclined to think that things we do in this life will make us happy. Victories we have in this life, degrees that we attain, different levels in our workplace that we get promoted to. We're even tempted to look beyond Jesus Christ and to think that some sort of pleasurable existence in a mansion in eternity will make us glad, but frankly, only, only union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Only he can do it. Reorient us to him. Make us ambassadors unashamed of him to a world that is perishing and so desperately needs him. Lord, make us attentive to your word and to the good news proclaimed and preached in it. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen.